All right. Welcome back to the Intervention Podcast. Uh, it's me, Nick, here with Steve and Comrade Levi. And it uh, feels like it's been a little bit since we've been here, guys, hasn't it? Just a minute. Just a minute. So, but we're back finally um, to talk about the British Empire, Zionism, and Palestine. I'm picking up with part two um, in the series that Steve started a couple weeks back now. So, Steve, um, I'll just pass it right over to you for a little bit of a recap, and then we can get into it. Yeah, sounds good. So we left off the last episode towards the end of the 1920s with the further violence sparked by sympathizers of Jabotinsky and a hope by the Palestinians that decreased immigration and the 1926 economic crisis would, be, would end the Zionist movement into Palestine. It's worth taking a moment here to note who Vladimir Ziyev's Jabotinsky really was in brief. So he was the more militant, free market side of the Zionist coin. During World War I, he'd become radicalized while serving as a journalist. In this capacity, he argued that Zionists must form a militia and fight alongside the British to gain international respect and recognition. His militant free market Zionism places him more or less in opposition to Chaim Weizmann and his socialist-influenced histrodot, uh, which we spoke of last episode. The Palestinian majority and the crown. So he's in opposition to all three of these things, more or less. So Jabotinsky becomes active in mandate politics and early on advocates for the formation of an aggressive military wing of the Zionist organization. His views are rejected, so he goes on and forms what he calls the New Zionist Organization, better known as the Revisionists. His aggressive leadership of the IZL, the Organization of Zionist Fighters, very quickly lands him in British prison. It's tempting to see the secular free market Jabotinsky in opposition to the more particular socialistic Weizmann or even the more secular socialist Ben-Gurion, but they needed each other in order to accomplish the imperial Zionist project. Point in fact, Jabotinsky's political legacy was carried on by his protege, Menachem Begin. Begin developed the political organization of Jabotinsky directly into what we know as the Likud Party. And for any neophytes out there, that Likud party is the very same secular neoliberal party which Netanyahu currently leads. I'm going to say, it sounds like the uh, influence of this guy abounds. Yeah, and, and those groups, I'll mention them throughout, the revisionists. And then, I mean, Wiseman was head of the, what we call, like, the Jew, what I call in here, the Jewish agency, right? Yeah. So these groups will get mentioned uh, as we go through this lovely, lovely story. What's all so confusing is they have so many, they all claim to be the Zionist organization or the organization of Zion or the Zionist organization of, they didn't come up with very unique names. So it gets really confusing on to who's actually representing what. Yeah. So um, back to this story. So again, after the, the further violence and then the decreased immigration and, you know, the mid twenties and the hope that that might end the Zionist movement into Palestine, um, We'll carry on from there. So this was not to be the case, and the 1930s saw the Palestinian situation deteriorate. As we insinuated last time, the rise of Nazism and fervent anti-Semitism in Europe led to a marked increase in Jewish flight to Palestine. 1935 saw the peak of this immigration, as over 66,000 Jews fled to Palestine. Yeshua Porath noted that this was the turning point in the struggle to the, of the Palestinian Arabs. It is important to note that as this immigration into Palestine was occurring, both the United States and Britain were severely limiting Jewish immigration. Moreover, those who did arrive in the U.S. or Britain were treated as refugees, whereas in Palestine they were colonists, determined to take the country and displace its inhabitants 
George Antonius, a leading Arab intellectual of the day, pointed out in 1938, the treatment meted out to the Jews in Germany and other European countries is a disgrace to its authors and to modern civilization, but posterity will not exonerate any country that fails to bear its proper share of the sacrifices needed to alleviate suffering and distress. To place the burden upon Arab Palestine is a miserable evasion of the duty that lies upon the whole civilized world. It is also morally outrageous. No code of morals can justify the persecution of one people in an attempt to relieve the persecution of another. The cure for eviction of the Jews from Germany is not to be sought in the eviction of Arabs from their homeland. The relief of Jewish distress may not be accomplished at the cost of inflicting a corresponding distress upon an innocent and peaceful population. Yeah, I think this is an issue that really bears repeating that just because we are saying that the Zionist project is imperialist and inherently bad uh, does not say that we're saying anything positive about the European countries or their own uh, economic cultural progression towards Nazism. No, in fact, I think we're placing the burden of this project on the European colonial powers more than anything in terms of the genesis of this project, right? Because, again, it was rooted in that their ideology, right? rooted in the sponsorship of some of these imperial leaders within Europe and the U.S., right? And I think that's where we're trying to place the onus of blame on, right? And I just think it's interesting because, Levi, you and I were talking about, like, FDR earlier today, right? And this is something when you kind of assess the legacy of that administration in that era that, like, gets overlooked in terms of, oh, it's like, well, all the emphasis is placed upon, well, it's like, oh, he helped fight the Nazis, right? But he didn't do a damn thing for the, the Jews fleeing the Holocaust before World War II even kicked off, you know, fleeing persecution before it even kicked off. And just to that point, I think that's a really great quote that you picked out, Steve, because no one was taking responsibility for this. So for all of the liberal rhetoric around, you know, human rights and everything like that, that was present then and persists to this day, it's like, well, we'll just pass the suffering on to somebody else. That's how it always goes. Yeah, I mean, I had a conversation with a mutual friend of ours a while ago. He's also Jewish, and uh, I, I would place this person more firmly in the Zionist camp. <laughs> but um, they were saying they like to travel, but they refused. They said they would never go to Germany because of what they did to the Jews. And I said, well, what about like Britain and even the U.S.? You know, we didn't exactly help Jewish people during this time. And, and they said we also would never. I would never go to France either. And I was like, well, I think France accepted more Jewish refugees than any other Western nation. It was just like an interesting conversation because um, just, you know, the stance of Germany bad and yeah, obviously they were. But I think more than most nations, they've reflected on the horrors of that period that they inflicted on people and have tried to educate and move forward. You know, you, we've talked about this numerous times, but when you talk about like the right complaining about tearing history down and bringing statues down and, you know, not wanting to teach CRT. Germans don't have any statues to Nazis, and there's a reason for that. <laughs> it's a pretty obvious reason, but they don't care if that part of their history isn't reflected. They, they teach it, and they teach how bad it was. So I think in terms of learning from your history, that's at least one example of a country that, that has probably done the right thing. Well, they didn't have to tear them down. They just shipped them over to Canada where they yeah. <laughs> idolized them. Yeah. But I think that's interesting because, I, I mean, I hear this a lot more being a Jewish person and involved in Jewish culture and activities and it's you hear it in like really backwards ways so you'll hear some individual jewish people talk about how bds is awful and a shame 
uh, yet they'll also talk about how they refuse to drive a Ford. And it's fine. I understand why they won't drive a Ford. Henry Ford was truly a monster. Uh, but it, they just don't see the contradiction in their politics that somebody could see the actions of a imperialist project like Israel as just as heinous as Henry Ford mass producing and publishing and distributing the elders of Zion. It's just a complete disconnect. I'll continue. A point I believe we have made on a few occasions is the extent to which the Zionist movement collaborated with the Nazis, and in particular with the SS, they had a shared interest in the eviction of Jews from Germany. Reinhard Heydrich, architect of the Holocaust, proclaimed his solidarity with Zionism in Das Schwarze Korps, the SS newspaper in 1935. He said, Nazis were in complete agreement with the great spiritual movement within Jewry itself, the so-called Zionism with its recognition of the solidarity of Jewry throughout the world and the rejection of all assimilationist ideas. Adolf Eichmann visited Palestine in 1937 at the invitation of the Zionists. The Gestapo worked closely with Mossad in handling illegal immigration. Heydrich demanded that Mossad should be sending off 400 Jews per week from Berlin alone. The SS also provided the Haganah with smuggled arms. So there's a lot to say here. So it's important to note that the Jewish refugees coming from Germany post-Kristallnacht were more likely to be white-collar, highly educated professionals like former business owners, lawyers, doctors, etc. These were the Jews who had some success in assimilating to German culture and secured some economic stability before the collapse of the world economy in 1929. Compare this to the Jews who had immigrated to Israel up to this point, which had been either true believers in Zionism or those facing bloody persecution in Eastern Europe, who were, by and large, poor peasants. Britain and the United States rejected these professional-class German Jews because the Nazis seized all their assets before rejecting them. The US and the UK didn't want more penniless unemployed masses entering their borders, even if they had been highly educated. Israel, on the other hand, welcomed this population, even though these secular Jews often had only a shallow self-interest in Zionism. Uh, but this would mean that they were more motivated to escape Nazism than they were to actually embracing Zionism. The Zionist organization hashed out the transfer agreement of 1934 with the Nazis in exchange for a small portion of the money seized by the Nazis from their victims. Histradot would give these refugees a new home in Eretz Israel. To the Nazis, this was a win-win situation. The Third Reich wanted to remove their, quote, Jewish problem, and in a repeat of the German position of World War I, they wanted to exacerbate Islamic and Arabic animosities towards the British Empire. The Nazis smuggled arms and information to, uh, to the Arab organizations at the same time, effectively playing both sides. So we're not claiming that the Nazis had any real sympathies. It was purely a means of political convenience. Yeah, and, and a means of, as Heinrich said, you know, remove, you know, getting, stopping assimilation and just getting them out of their country. And the, the, and the Zionists were more than happy to agree to that. Imagine the Zionists working with extreme right-wingers. <laughs> yeah, they, they learned that lesson, though. Yeah. I just had no idea to the extent at which those connections... I mean, I always knew that there was some level of like cooperation, but I guess I just didn't realize that Eichmann actually visited Palestine at the invite of these early Zionist leaders. That's That's something... <laughs> You know, I've got a great quote coming up. There's even a, a great movement of Jewish fascist party within early Israel that, uh, or not early Israel, pre-Israel. It didn't really get very far. 
believe I mentioned Kristallnacht, and, and following Kristallnacht, there was a chance to relocate thousands of Jewish children to Britain. Ben Gurion commented, If I knew that it would be possible to save all the children in Germany by bringing them over to England, and only half of them by transporting them to Eretz Israel, then I would opt for the second alternative. We must weigh not only the life of those children, but also the history of the people of Israel. That's a... It's really a quotation worth lingering on. Yeah. I don't know what else to say, but like the, this, this is monstrous. I mean, this guy's a monster. Like, I mean, that sentiment is monstrous. I mean, it, it reminds me of something that came out today with this uh, Motric, right? Like this new, uh, this new guy under, in the Netanyahu administration that's basically in, responsible for overseeing the West Bank, right? And he made some comment about that this village, two IDF soldiers, I believe, or, you know, Zionists recently got killed by Palestinians, right? And there was like this, you know, vengeance kind of taken upon this one village. And this guy who's in the government is basically calling for the extermination, the eradication of this entire village, you know? And he's saying, you know, it shouldn't be the people but the state of Israel should take care of this, right? So it just lends itself to this this idea of like the preeminence of this idea of the state itself and the responsibilities of this state, right? Or I guess in this, what would be the nascent state, but just the, the dark places that this has led to. <laughs> well, we talk a lot about the, uh, you know, once freedom is is earned, and you know, in this case, obviously we're, talking about we're talking about this from the Palestinian perspective freedom was never earned from them but in terms of the Israelis learning from their you know or the Zionists learning from their imperial masters you know the uh, the British did a pretty good job in destroying some villages as we'll get in yeah yeah I'm not the first to make this parallel but there's a parallel being drawn with the incident that Nick is describing to the pogroms of Eastern Europe that the uh, Czar could claim that his government was not the one that was murdering its own people, uh, but was standing aside and letting the people do the mass murdering themselves, and then claiming that his military would exonerate those who had done it. Uh, and that is more or less the position of the Israeli government at this point, that they're willing to stand by and allow Israeli settlers to go in, um, perform the actions of a military, which it's important to remind uh, listeners that because military membership is mandatory, these are all military-trained men going in and performing these pogroms on Palestinian villages, and then saying, this is the responsibility of the Israeli government, not of the people, but doing nothing to stop the people. Yeah, and I guess the parallel that I wanted to draw with that, because I know we're talking about different things with that Ben-Gurion quote, but just like, just the disregard for human life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the kindest thing that can be said about that Ben-Gurion quote was that he had this belief that Jews could not assimilate to British or American life, which is just wrong. And it's better to be dead than try to assimilate? Like, what the fuck? It, yeah, it's twisted. It's truly sick. So, to move on from that very happy conversation point, between 1920 and 1939... The Zionists purchased 5% of Palestine's total land area, but this made up at least one-fifth of its arable land. This meant that in 1935, each Jewish colonist had approximately 28.1 acres. 
while each Palestinian had only 9.4. This inevitably led to increased poverty and landlessness of the Arab population. This also led to a large influx of Jewish capital and in turn caused an excessively high rate of inflation when agricultural wages were severely depressed. To make matters worse, the Palestinians were not just evicted from land, but also subjected to the Jewish labor law only policy of the Histradat. Employers who hired Palestinians were violently picketed, and when employed, Palestinians were paid less. This led to Palestinians being forced to live in slums. In Haifa alone, it was estimated that at least 11,000 families were relocated to these slums. I think it's sort of interesting to note the sort of Marxist historical progression of this. I mean, this is the greedy landowners selling to unscrupulous buyers without any regard for the people that are actually living on this land. They then have to move to the cities and take extremely dangerous, low-paying factory work. It's just the contradictions are heightened by the fact that there's this already advanced European culture there that's not even allowing them to take the extremely low means of their own reproduction. Yeah, and I mean, it's happening during the creation of essentially an ethnostate, right? So it's like not even, you know, like we're reading Capital right now and Marx talks about, he's talking about like the British context of like everybody as a laborer being able to bring your labor to the market on like a somewhat idealized equal basis, right? But like as we talk about time and time again, colonialism adds like a different level to this of inequality, right? Yeah, I mean, the the Palestinians are really getting this on both ends. Because the individuals that are selling this land, the Arabs that are selling this land, are often not Palestinians. They have very little interest in the welfare of the people that live on their land. So the Palestinians don't even have a national project to look, uh, look up to uh, at the same time that this concurrent ethno-nationalist project with European background is actively fighting them. Uh, they just they have nowhere to turn. Yeah, I would imagine some of this is like the remnants of the elite of the uh, the Ottoman Empire. Exactly. And I mean, we'll see this again and again in the British language that there'll be excuses made that, you know, these Palestinians, these Arabs, why don't they just move to Syria? Why don't they just move to another Arab state? There's so many Arab states. It's like, well, they don't all just call themselves or consider themselves Arabs. Like there's actual differences between these people. They're not, even though they're all brown skinned and practice Islam doesn't mean that they all are the same person. Yeah, and why don't you go move to another fucking country? It's as simple as that, right? I mean, just to draw a parallel, go tell a Scot that he's English and he should move to England. Or go tell, you know, a Northern Irish person that they're not Irish and they're English, really. I mean, you wouldn't get a very nice response. I mean, just to draw parallels to, like, you know, what would strike a chord with a, with a British person. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard... I mean, yeah. since we've been raised in it, it's hard for us to imagine Europeans as anything other than this multi-ethnic continent. But it's relatively easy for us to think of Arabs as some sort of unifying body. Yeah. Some homogenous thing, which, like, when in reality it's the epicenter, I mean, that region is like the epicenter of, like, human civilization in a lot of ways that sprung multiple different cultures, languages that, you know, still have persistent manifestations you know what i mean and how different groups evolved and that like some of that doesn't persist and that everybody's exactly the same it's like come on it's the same as africa as well right i mean a lot yeah. of people are just dismissive of africans they're all the same and they're obviously not they're, they're very different so 
I think we made the comment in a previous episode of, you know, how ridiculous would it be if massive numbers of Palestinians started moving into Scotland and claiming that this is their birth land, that they deserve to be here. And these Scots, yeah, they can just move into England. What's the difference? You're both white people. You both basically speak English. You can be together. It's like, yeah, it, it, it sounds farcical, but this is the project that's happening. Yeah. So the political element to these developments meant that the Palestinian leadership had to contend with the prospect of Zionist majority. This at a time where elsewhere in the Middle East, British and French imperialism was having to make concessions to Arab nationalism. British commitment to the Zionists meant that there would be no self-governance until there was a Zionist majority. In October 1933, there was a demonstration against Jewish immigrations that after being dispersed by police gunfire, left 15 protesters dead. A general strike followed, which left another 10 protesters dead. The Zionist settlers' growing wealth and numbers meant that they largely ignored the protests and were arrogant and aggressive, believing the future belonged to them. In October 1935, it became common knowledge that the Yishuv had received a shipment of 250 Mausers and 50,000 rounds of ammunition from the Nazis, and Arab opinion was outraged. At this time, a Syrian preacher, Iz al-Din al-Qassam, began organizing an underground network with the intent to launch a revolutionary war. He established his base in the hills around Jenin, but he, he and his guerrillas were killed by the British in November 1935. While this may have suppressed the immediate threat, his death sent a wave of grief and rage over Palestine. He became a symbol of martyrdom and self-sacrifice, embodying for her people a selflessness conspicuously absent among their leaders. Mufti and other Palestinian leadership were absent from this funeral. I think this gets to a point that we're making earlier about the sort of multicultural nature of the Arab people. But this gets to a different point that was also existing co uh, concurrent to that, that there was a movement of trans-cultural Arab identity to resist British imperialism and the Zionist project. It's just what they're being asked to create is so much more difficult than what the European project is attempting to create. Because the European project is happy to create division, whereas the Arab national project is attempting to create unity. And one is always easier to foment than the other. Yeah, I was just thinking about this because I just read some... I've, I've been reading up on China lately, and I was thinking about, like, not that it was easy, but at least it was easy to kind of form some nationalist sentiment, like, especially around anti-Japanese imperialism, right? And then further anti, just anti-imperialism broadly, and then anti-capitulationist, which was the KMT, right? But you have that national identity, at least somewhat, and China's still very complicated with many different ethnic groups, et cetera, et cetera. But there was a notion of China, right? That people could rally around at some level, but you don't have that here, do you? And I think that's exactly what you're saying. You don't have that in the same way. So you can't use nationalism in the sense that, in the context that I think it's good to use nationalism, right, for like a national, national liberation struggle, because it is that unifying point, and it can be cross-class in a lot of ways. But if that identity is lacking or not there, you don't really have that linchpin. Yeah, I, I think on the sort of take it up to even a higher level, I think the comparison to China is really apt, because it's literally the creation of the nation in a self-conscious way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's easy for us to think now where we sit of a singular Japan, but that was a creation 
of the Meiji Restoration, there was multiple Japanese cultures that were sort of mod- not homogenized, obviously, but uh, were were created so that there was a single national culture. So what we're seeing in China is the creation of a nation, and that takes a lot of time. Uh, there's a lot of stutter steps. I mean, we have a a Brit on here, and we know that the notion of a unified kingdom is incredibly difficult. It takes a long time, and even after a certain number of era, it can still fall apart. Inshallah. And the idea that the uh, the Arabs are trying to create this within the the span of what thirty years uh, it's it's incredible. Falling apart before our eyes, I think right now. So good riddance. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Goddamn the queen. <laughs> so following um, this Alkasam's funeral, the bulk of what the remaining of the remainder of this podcast will be is. Is, is kind of a period known as the Great Revolt. And so the Great Revolt began on April 17th, 1936, by Arab guerrillas who were probably followers of Al Qassam. A bus was stopped near Nablus, and two Jewish passengers were killed. In retaliation, revisionist gunmen killed two Arab shepherds. These sparks were enough to ignite the fire of the revolt. On April 19th, there was serious rioting in Jaffa, and nine Jews were killed. The next day, a general strike was called and spread through Palestine. This was spontaneous and led by emerging radical leadership at a local level, ignoring the traditional established government. On April 25th, the Arab Higher Committee, which I'll call the AHC from now on, was established, led by Mufti. Although some suggest the AHC pushed for the revolt, it seems it was more a child of it rather than the founder. George Antonios notes that, in fact, the revolt was in a very marked way a challenge to their authority and an indictment of their method. The general strike lasted 175 days, the longest in history, and witnessed considerable violence as armed bands clashed with British and Zionists. There were weaknesses in Haifa. Arab dock workers returned to work for fear of losing their jobs to the Zionists, and the Histradat used highly motivated strike breakers. The AHC also allowed Arab civil servants to continue working and demanded donations. Allowing them to strike would have brought the administration to a standstill. The British, as I'm sure you can imagine, reacted with increased ferocity. So all this is really interesting. It sort of speaks back to what I had stated earlier about the proletarianization of the Palestinian people. So they're removed from their land, and the jobs that they end up taking are incredibly important to the functioning of the mandate Palestinian economy. So they actually do have some power in withholding their labor. It just doesn't ever seem to be enough to create new circumstances for their own empowerment. Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, it, it seemed like if they'd allowed everyone to strike, it, it would have been even more devastating. But, you know, unfortunately, the AHC had these civil servants continue to work. And that just sort of speaks to the false notion of socialism that's being pushed forward by the history dot. I mean, you could imagine, and I, I would imagine that the communist aspects of the history dot, the communist members of the Zionist organizations probably supported these general strikes and understood this as the subjection of the working class. Just unfortunately, the communist powers were uh, in a minority. So to continue, the British brought in troops in Gaza. The resistance was so fierce, they brought in tanks and armored cars. The staunchest resistance was in Jaffa where the British reacted by blowing up 237 houses. Due to the armed occupation of the towns, the resistance moved to the countryside, where the Palestinians were bolstered by volunteers from other Arab nations. I'm going to really butcher this name, but... Fauzi al-Qawuji, a Syrian 
revolutionary, established a command in an attempt to give the movement direction. The British responded with mass arrests, shootings, torture, and destruction of houses. The general strike was called off on October 10, 1936, by which time 36 British troops and police, 80 Jewish settlers, and over 1,000 Palestinians had been killed. I think here it's really important to emphasize just sort of the parallels with common, with modern history. So it just bears repeating how lopsided the use of force is at this time. And this is just such a prescient issue. One Zionist is murdered, and we can all agree, loss of human life is never a good thing. But it doesn't mean that a score of Palestinians deserve to be murdered in their homes in retaliation. Not to say that an eye for an eye ever really makes sense. Uh, just that the ramping up of imperialism is always justified by an exaggeration of threat. Also, like, you know, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's exactly where I was going to because I've been thinking a lot about it's always this idea of like, oh, it's just because there's an acknowledgement that there's violence by Zionists, right? Like, that's unavoidable. You can't escape the acknowledgement that there's something bad going on over there, right? So now the window is kind of shifted over to it's like, well, you know, both sides are equally bad. That's not the case, and it's never been the case. It's never been the case. The balance of power has always been shifted towards the sides of the Zionists because they've been buoyed by the imperialists, right? And you just look at a number like this, and it's like what I was talking about earlier. You know, two Zionists get killed, they burn down a fucking village. I'm sorry, but like, I've never been in the situation where somebody's like coming to kick me out of my house. I can't tell you what I'm going to do in a situation where my neighborhood's getting taken over by people. And again, the the whole the whole fact that we're already on stolen land aside and shit like that but um you know but you know what i mean like i can't tell you how i'm going to react if suddenly like my family is kicked out of our house that we've been in for years and this is just the continuation of something that's been happening to me for generations and generations and again i'm speaking as an individual here but like i don't know at some point i might fucking snap too you know yeah i mean just reality it's that sort of uh competing reality that the United States has only ever participated in defensive wars. It has never been involved in an offensive war. There is always an excuse for an attack. When in reality, we've never fought a defensive war, except for, I don't know, maybe 1812 or something. But <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's excuses. I mean, 1812, they burned down our White House, so yeah. had to do something. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You can blame the Canadians now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. Based on other examples in the Arab world, the British would have almost certainly made concessions. This is also due to the fact this was becoming increasingly costly and hurting the British reputation in other Arab nations. So they would have made concessions to the Palestinians if it wasn't for their commitment to the Zionists. However, they realized that they needed a way out that would satisfy the Zionists and placate the Palestinians. And this led to the Peel Commission. The AHC demanded Palestinian independence, but the Peel Commission, published on July 7, 1937, recommended the partition of the country. It proposed that Palestine and Transjordan be divided into a Jewish state, an Arab state, and a British enclave. The Zionists would get 40% of Palestine, the coastal plain, but not Jaffa, Haifa, and Accra, which as ports would remain under British control. The British would control the strategic corridor from Jaffa to Jerusalem, and the rest of Palestine and Transjordan would become an Arab state. The Zionist state would have 258,000 Jews and 225,000 Arabs, whereas the Arab state would have only 
1,250 Jews. The Palestinians realized that those unfortunate enough to find themselves in the Zionist state would almost certainly face forced eviction. Ben-Gurion noted, I am for compulsory transfer. I don't see anything immoral in it. The revisionists, however, did not think that this was enough. They felt that anything less than all of Palestine, Transjordan, part of Syria, and much of Lebanon was a betrayal. However, the Jewish agency agreed because it, was, because it established a Jewish state now, and they felt they would be able to seize more territory once they became stronger. Yeah, this is sort of like the, the yin and yang of the Zionist project that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. The Jewish state is happy to take what they can get, but the understanding that the revisionists are going to continue pushing for more of the state. So worth noting here, the British Labour Party did not side in solidarity with the general strike. Instead, they made comments such as these. The Jews have proved to be first-class colonizers, to have the real good old empire qualities, to be really first-class colonial pioneers. That was Herbert Morris. So I think he, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, that is a good question. I actually don't know. Or, do, you know do you know um, who, I, who Herbert Morrison is? He was a, I, I think he was just a member of parliament for the Labour Party. I didn't look up exactly what he was. I mean, Chamberlain was in power at this point, so they weren't in power. But um, you still, I mean, you know, I, we, we touched on it during the episode we did with Turn Leftists on Russia. You know, there was a strong movement on the left in, in England after the First World War, like, keep, you know, hands off Russia. They, I mean, I'm sure the, the more true leftists in, in Britain were siding with the Palestinians, um, but, you know, the kind of aristocratic Labour Party were, were obviously just towing the imperial line. Showing their spineless colors early. So I think to even complicate this further, the Soviet Union also supported immigration to Israel and rejection to, of the former stance of the anti-Zionist Bund. The change came in part because Jews often sided with the Red Army. In fact, Trotsky, as head of the Red Army and a secular Jew himself, used his position of power to crush pogroms encouraged by the whites across the Soviet Union during the Civil War. Stalin felt that Jewish people within the Union were true believers in socialism and further believed they might be able to foment a Soviet-friendly international socialism in Israel. These communist and socialist Zionists might have been the many who did push for Palestinian solidarity, uh, but unfortunately, their position ultimately did not win out. We did not get a transnational, international socialist Israel. So chalk this up as a miscalculation on the part of the Soviet Union. Yeah, and there's a little point at the end about the Soviet Union as well that I've got. Yeah, that's a good point to bring up because it has to be considered a mistake, obviously. But I think the... Uh, the motivations are uh, are different, and it's not to absolve of any sins, but you know, it's to look at where they're coming from. Well, the British are calling them good colonizers. You know, Stalin and Trotsky are hoping for international solidarity, and you know, hope, I would assume that they would hope for something way different than what ultimately transpired. Oh yeah, I mean, just to to put it even more succinct, the British see good colonizers, the Soviets see good communists, right, and uh. The colonists obviously won out. On September 26, 1937, Palestinian revolutionaries assassinated the district commissioner of Galilee, Louis Andrews, and his police bodyguard in Nazareth. The AHC condemned the attack, but the British used the opportunity to arrest the majority of the Arab leadership, except for Mufti, who escaped to Syria. Andrews' successor, Alec Kirkbride, 
felt the arrests were made were, were a mistake as he had quote no arabs of influence with whom i could deal and the masses were completely out of control the arabs living in his territory made it clear that he would be killed at the first opportunity as would anyone else who followed next i thought it was a pretty great comment the response to arrests was more intense guerrilla fighting than in 1936 and took on a greater class dimension with the poor peasantry asserting themselves against the landowning elite. The revolt grew in strength in 1937 and 38. Much of the countryside was in rebel hands, with revolutionary courts and administrations emerging at a local level and approximately 10 to 15,000 rebel fighters. As their grip on the countryside strengthened, they began to move to the cities, occupying Jaffa, Beersheba, Gaza, Jericho, Bethlehem, and Ramallah. In October 1938, they retook the old city of Jerusalem, driving out the police. Following this, the rebels proclaimed a moratorium on all debts. The British were outraged. Hugh Foote, an assistant district commissioner, remembered that they were confronting, quote, a full-scale rebellion. All ordinary administration ceased. Every morning, I looked through a list of disorders and destruction. Telephones cut, bridges damaged, trains derailed, convoys ambushed fighting in the hills. For two years, I never moved without a gun in my hand. We, cern- we soon learned that it was useless to have a gun in the holster. I just love how this quotation talks about all of these horrible deeds that are happening, like the destruction of property. Yeah. Um, aren't people dying too? Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I, I didn't write, I didn't put this in the, in the write up, but yeah, I mean, that was my thought as well. Um, and it, it just happens again and again with the, with the British, you know, um, bureaucrats all they that, that's what they care about is is the uh i mean they, they care when their people get killed but it it's either if one of them die or destruction of property again leads to a completely unbalanced or completely unbalanced acts of violence as as nick and you both pointed out levi can't imagine the moratorium on debts uh they were very happy about that either it's outrage <laughs> yeah. and outrage that's so funny no i just was i just kept thinking about police precincts burning but you know cop they'll keep killing people and what do people care about or you know what do uh our rulers care about an important distinction yeah edward keith roach district commissioner for jerusalem remembered on three occasions i missed deaths from bonds by a few inches and arabs were caught with revolvers in my garden a couple of times scores of my acquaintances met their death by bullet or bomb and one never knew who would be the next victim Police and military were attacked 1,000 times and Jewish settlements over 600. The telephone was sabotaged on 700 occasions and the railways and roads on 340. The Iraqi Petroleum Company pipeline was damaged at an average rate of twice a week. I'm sure not owned by Iraqis, right? <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure <laughs> not. But again, you know, at, at the point that Levi made it, you know, the, the highlighting of... of uh, I mean, he obviously talks about some deaths that, uh, again, of, of, of their people, but yeah, my acquaintances. Yeah, exactly. But focuses on the, um, property damage as well. Just fucking leave. <laughs> yeah, I can go. <laughs> you know, I know that's not like a, you know, that's just kind of like a trite shitty little statement or whatever, but you know what I mean? Like it, again, I uh, like, as, as I was getting at earlier, it's like, can you blame these people? They're getting forcibly divided, forcibly moved. Like, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, it's that great question. You know, he says he missed death uh, from bombs by a few inches. 
what if he was back home in Britain? How many hundreds of miles away would those bombs be falling? Yeah. I don't know. The, the Irish might be trying to blow him up then. So, <laughs> uh, Fair point. At the end of November 1938, General Richard Haining, Commander-in-Chief, reported a very deep-seated rebellious spirit throughout the whole Arab population, spurred on by the call of a holy war. The rebels have such a hold over the mass of the population that it is not untrue to say that every Arab in this country is a potential enemy of the government. Again, that kind of you know, draws parallels to Ireland. You think the British would be used to this by now. Due to the potential war with Germany, Britain could not reinforce their army in Palestine until Chamberlain concluded the Munich Agreement, at which point reinforcement rushed in and the British began to the reconquest of the country. Reclaiming Jerusalem was the first priority in which they would attempt to pacify the countryside, of course, using extreme brutality. So David Smiley was a young officer in Palestine, and he recalls a raid on a house. The first man was seized by two Arab policemen and held upside down while his feet were placed between a rifle and its sling. He was then kept in this position while policemen took it in turns to beat the soles of his feet with a leather belt with short pauses for questioning. After a time, he agreed to talk, and the beating ceased. The second man talked after the application of a lighted cigarette to his testicles. But the the third seemed to be the leader and was more reluctant. In a flash, the Arab sergeant flew at him and hit him in the face until both his eyes were closed. Blood was flowing, and a number of teeth were spewed out onto the floor. He then agreed to talk. I'm going to edit in a uh, content warning at the top of this episode. Yeah, yeah, not even making a joke here. Like, Jesus. Yeah. So Smiley was disgusted by this and complained they were using the methods of the Gestapo. He was told that force is the only language these Arabs understood and that he would never have to torture, just tell the Arab police to do it. So this seems to highlight two things. First of all, the nature of British rule in Palestine, but also the reality of colonial rule. Politicians and apologists of empire can claim benevolence as it wasn't the British carrying out the torture. Once again, I'm going to plug Amisa's air discourse on colonialism. Nazism was just the practices of the colonial powers turned back inward. And at that point, it became intolerable because it was on their home soil. But it was, the, you know, just because he mentions the Gestapo here, it's like, yeah, dude, this is what you guys do to you know the global south this is just the gestapo doing it in europe again disproportionately towards jews and everything but like that's that violence turned inward this isn't new to the people of the colonized world yeah and this this david smiley you know like again it doesn't go into his history what i read i don't know who he was and you know he's a young officer so he may have just been some kid who didn't think he had any other option but like joining the military or the police to further a career oh, and an adventure yeah i mean so he i mean what i'm trying to to give him like as much credit as i possibly can no, I he, he may not know you know what's going on in india and everywhere else britain's been you know he may not be a student of all that so again this is like shocking to him but i've got another account of another officer that's a little different so that we'll get into next yeah, just to, to draw that into the sort of American and Israeli perspective, I mean, we have individuals like Smedley Butler, who very early in his career embraces American imperialism, only to realize over time what he has done and what he has wrought. And to sort of put a point on this in the Israeli perspective, so, and sort of talking about Weizmann and 
Jabotinsky as two sides of the same coin, one of the arguments that Weizmann was making about the Jewish imperial project was that the Jewish people were going to build up sectors of uh, factory work and capital investment and railroads and wi- uh, telephone wires, all of these great improvements to the land of Israel that eventually the Palestinians would either come to assimilate and accept the Israeli position because they had created such a great land for them, a land of promise and riches, or they would move to their sort of brethren lands because this is them seeing all Arabs as the same, which is incredibly similar, if not directly parallel to the British perspective. Not the real perspective, as this is sort of uncovering what the real imperialism is, but this was sort of the language of imperialism that was used. And in Israel, it's sort of bifurcated into this Jabotinsky-Weizmann situation, whereas they're both the same project. Yeah, and this isn't exactly related to what you were saying, but just because you mentioned like the real motives of imperialism, right? And I think it's just important that you know you quickly noted, Steve, this Iraqi pipeline and the British aren't doing this just because like, they have such love for the Jewish people. If they had such love for the Jewish people, they would accept them in. This has everything to do with control of the Middle East and its resources and its key ports and continued dominance, as we talked about in our episode on Greece, continued dominance of the Mediterranean on this side as well. So that's, that's the real impetus for the British coming in and killing all these people under the guise of like helping the Zionist settlers. I mean, we'll, we'll see that more in a little bit because, you know, once war breaks out and Britain realizes they can't lose this strategic position in Palestine, you know, they start making concessions to the Palestinians and in turn piss off the Zionists, which I'll, I'll get to kind of towards the end. So as I mentioned, I'll, I'll, there's another account by a, another young British policeman. This guy's name is Sidney Burr. So he had a differing view to David Smiley. He complained about the leniency of the courts, but stated it wasn't much of a problem because any Johnny Arab who was caught by us in suspicious circumstances is shot out of hand. After a bomb attack, Burr was happy to report that he and other police had descended on a market and thrashed every Arab we saw, smashed all shops and cafes and created havoc and bloodshed. He also commented on road accidents. Most accidents out here are caused by police, as running over an Arab is the same as a dog in England, except we do not report it. Another monstrous quote. Yeah, I mean, this is just like the guys you hear about that went to Afghanistan for the U.S., you know, to spread freedom and democracy that would collect folks from Afghanistan. They'd collect their ears after they killed them as like tokens. So, you know, for every person that you've got recoiling at the horrors of war, that you know went there for probably reasons that they didn't understand. There's a few of these psychopaths running dogs of fucking imperialism on the ground as well. Yeah, and it's like you know, like the black and tens in Ireland, where they just rounded up any criminals and crazy military people to to deal with the Irish as well. So the British obviously have a history of this, and it continues to exist in Israel, where we would. It seems to be likely that most of the population tries to think as little as possible about the realities of the Arab life. I mean, that's where we get the sort of contradiction of mass protests in Israel against reforming the judiciary, while at the same time, not a single one of them seems to give a, any care about the mass death in Palestine. You know, they're truly protesting for their own individual rights because they understand these things as human rights 
as they are, but they can't get themselves to really look in the mirror on these bigger questions. Yeah, and just to tie, as we've kind of touched on a bunch of times, empire in here, due to the unrest, Charles Tegert was brought in to advise the British administration. He was seen as a man with considerable experience policing the natives in India. He established the Arab Investigation Centers, where, as he put it, the gentle art of the third degree was practiced on Arab subjects until they spilled the beans. Advanced interrogation techniques? Yes. Late 1938 and 39 saw the Great Revolt relentlessly ground to nothing. Villages were bombed using 250-pound or 500-pound bombs for any village that spoke out of turn. And interestingly, at the same time, the fascist bombing of Guernica caused an outrage in Britain, whereas the bombing of Palestinian villages was ignored. One RAF squadron alone dropped almost 800 bombs on rebel targets. Thousands of Palestinians were held without trial. Harsh collective punishments were imposed on entire communities. Palestinian hostages were used as human shields, and ID cards were introduced. There's the uh, origins of some uh, apartheid practices there, huh? Yeah. So an example of collective punishment was when an assistant district commissioner in Janine was shot, the town was blown up. On another occasion, the village of Kafir Yashif was burned as retribution for a mine killing one soldier. When neighboring villagers came to help put out the fire, they were machine gunned and at least nine were killed. The British also hung 112 Palestinian freedom fighters and withheld water from villages that harbored freedom fighters. I believe just today it was announced that one of the Palestinians that were murdered had just come home from helping in the evacuation of citizens in Turkey. It's just the story continues. So, the British also had help from the Zionists in these actions. Ord Wingate, a British officer, established the Special Night Squads. These were Jewish volunteers that would today be called death squads. The revisionists also used the British actions to carry out their own terror operations. Through their underground militia, they carried out a series of terrorist bombings on Palestinian civilians. On July 6, 1938, they killed 21 Arabs in a market bombing in Haifa. On July 15th, they killed 10 Arabs in a bombing in Jerusalem. On July 25th, they killed another 35 Arabs in a market bombing in Haifa. And on August 26th, they killed 24 Arabs with a bomb in Jaffa. So the British defeated the Great Revolt by the spring of 1939, but the military and police operation continued throughout 1940. By the end of the conflict, 5,000 Palestinian rebels had been killed, and there's no record of the number of civilians. So to close out, Following the outbreak of war with Germany, Britain was forced into concessions with the Palestinians due to its strategic importance and need for good relations with the Middle East. As such, Chamberlain issued a white paper in May 1939 repudiating the Balfour Declaration and limiting Jewish immigration to 75,000 people in the next five years. Churchill called this a betrayal of the Zionist cause. The Zionists were outraged, and although they had strengthened their position during the Great Revolt, Ben-Gurion started to look elsewhere for imperial support, increasingly to the U.S. During the war, the Jewish agency followed a policy of cooperating with Britain against the Nazis, while at the same time working to overthrow the white paper. The revisionists split with one faction supporting the British and another supporting the Nazis. Mufti did ally himself with the Nazis in the hope of a British defeat in the Middle East. 
By the end of the war, the Zionists felt they were strong enough to break with the British, and in October 1945, launched a guerrilla campaign to drive them out, which they eventually did in June 1948. The Zionists then moved to establish the State of Israel with the support of the U.S. and the Soviet Union. The U.S. provided diplomatic support while the Soviets armed the new state. Both saw this as their opportunity to weaken the British Empire. And that's the end. I mean, it's not often that I'm like almost brought to tears about this shit, but like that just lately with everything that's going on and like, I have no personal dog in this fight, but I I just see this day after day, the events that go on. And if it just doesn't make you tremble at the injustice at some level, if you're aware of what's going on, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you, you know, it's, it's not good. And you can see, you know, there's some even pushback and, and like Levi, you mentioned, there's even some internal pushback at this point. I think that still has some way to go in terms of uh, building solidarity with the Palestinian people and not just thinking about like kind of like the advancement of like this kind of soft veneer of liberalism in a Zionist state, you know, so I hope that that can kind of grow in terms of solidarity, but I don't know. It's just... It's just nothing new and it still goes on is, is what I took from this more than anything, you know, and it's just the ravages of imperialism. So I would just say there's a couple of outlets that do a really good job of covering this um, so you can kind of be aware of what's going on. Mint Press uh, News covers this well. The Electronic Intifada um, does great coverage just in terms of presenting a current day Palestinian perspective on events. So definitely give those outlets a, a look. And then again, just the uh, Support BDS, you know, I think I mentioned last time we had an event where we showed this boycott movie, you know, and it was staggering to learn all of the resources that Israel pours into kind of influencing state governments, right? And money into kind of fighting kind of like a covert war against the BDS movement through, you know, information campaigns and again, influencing state legislators, like I already said. But I guess... One, you're confronted with kind of the power because, again, the power of the U.S. empire is behind the Israeli government as well. So you're confronted by kind of that realization of just how much money and technology is behind this. But then also the fact that they're spending all of this kind of money indicates that they feel threatened. And they've looked at the boycott. I mean, the boycott is just like the basic, most basic level of of action it's like i think they described it in the video is like this is the act of the powerless right this is the one thing you can do is the kind of like vote with your dollar which we know this is just the beginnings of it and how threatened they are even by that i guess is in kind of like a non-intuitive way but just shows kind of how how powerful it could be but i don't know man it's just just depressing but also there's there's some you have to be optimistic as well it's a sort of notion that they're trying to buy silence. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that people aren't trying to speak. Right. And just to add another resource, one that we actually read one of their articles for, but Jewish Currents also offers an incredibly critical side to the Zionist operation from the Jewish perspective. Good point. I've got nothing to add really on the, on the British side. I mean, I thought that was... I don't know. I thought it was well done just to lay out just how crucial the empire was to this project. You know, take another one on the list of things the British have fucked up in the world. Well, pretty sad. They might be relegated to the dustbin of history soon enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I was gonna say all these places that they have uh they colonized, like you you look at something like the BRICS as an organization and you know, multipolarity is not the end all be all for the society that we want to see in the world, but I think it's just kind of like the best next step we could see in a world of declining US hegemony where the US still tries to cling on to it. But you know, you look at the BRICS and you look at all of these places were formally colonized or attempted to be colonized places. The, the pendulum's swinging back. So we just have to kind of hope and fight for that. And I don't give a fuck if they're not all socialists. The, the decline of U.S. hegemony is what we need to see at this point in time. Yeah, there needs to be a vacuum for power to fill because the power that we have is not legitimate. Yeah, yeah. I happened to run into a friend at a, a, a lunch that I was going to and I invited him to sit with us just out of... Um, let's say politeness. And this guy is converting to Judaism and it's something that you see sometime among converts where they're not quite in on the difference between Zionism and Jewishness, which is very clearly delineated in American Jewry, which is a, a positive sign. Yeah. But he was sort of talking on and on about the crimes of the Palestinians against Israel and how he doesn't believe that any of this can be even remotely considered genocide. And I was just like kind of sitting there and letting him go for a while, letting him wind down. And then I sort of interrupts like, so you don't see anything wrong going on on the side of the Israelis. He's like, well, not in comparison. Like, okay. It's like, so you don't want to call it genocide. Like, can you at least admit that it's ethnic cleansing? He's like, well, yeah, there's definitely policies of discrimination. I was like, and you believe those policies of discrimination are justified? He's like, well, they're they're attacking. Like, do you know who was there first? And then he just like goes back, like, well, the Jews have been there for thousands of years. And it's like, uh, no, nah, the state of Israel is really pretty new. Like, I know that you're a convert, so maybe you don't know this, but uh, I'm a Jew and I am nowhere near Israel, and I've been in Europe for thousands of years. Like, I don't belong there. I don't know why you think you belong there. You definitely don't belong there. We're white people. We don't belong over there. Yeah, there's just like there's no conversing with somebody that truly believes on a religious level that they belong there, but that that's not the norm. Most people don't think that way, and I think that's helpful. No, yeah, and it, but it also shows just I mean in that conversation just how quickly you can kind of like poke holes in that argument, you know? Because I mean? I'm sure you know if I can infer how this guy was going, I'm sure like he was just spitting facts as he thought, right? You know, and then. You know, you just ask a couple probing questions and suddenly this idea of fully justified kind of falls apart. You know what I mean? If you can get to somebody, get somebody to admit to discrimination that ostensibly like that, that's one of those words that liberals like, you know, they, they prick up at, right? Like, no, 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 not discrimination, not racism or anything like that. Right. So, okay. But you don't like that word, but there's practices of vetting that that so i don't know how do you feel now right and sort of the the scariest thing about that conversation if you had had that same conversation with him in his toolkit he could bounce back to you that you're being anti-semitic yeah yeah he doesn't have that with me all he can do is sort of be quiet about it and think right. like oh i'm a fallen jew i don't really understand he he brought up the sort of notion of anti-semitism being rampant and it's like you know, there's a difference between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, right? He was just like, oh, well, 
yeah, I understand. It's like, it's a historical process. I was like, yeah, it was like created in the 1970s. He's like, no, no, it's older than that. I'm like, okay, yeah, anti-Semitism is older than that, but it was a state project to link anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. Yeah. And like, there's no answer to that. So, I mean, in a situation like that, like, say I'm talking to the guy, and I obviously have strong feelings about this because I recognize there's a difference between Zionism and Jewishness, right? I mean, how, I mean, how do I, how does someone like I approach that conversation? Do I not say anything? I mean, it just gets tough because like I have strong feelings about this and I don't think, and I know I'm not wrong, but I, I guess, how do you approach that? Well, being a Jewish guy, I've never had to approach that problem. Yeah. Well, how do you recommend a non-Jewish guy approach that? <laughs> I think you could draw parallels to other settler colonial issues because if they're a, a liberal on some level, then they're going to already be uncomfortable talking about native people in the United States. Yeah. And so draw that parallel. I mean, how would it feel to a native person to have these white people come in and say that they belong here? And then he's going to claim some option like, well, it's different. They, the Jews actually have a claim to this land. It's like, well, don't the Mormons have a religious claim, the area they live in as well? I mean, religion is very tightly wound in the settler colonial project. Mm-hmm. You know, this was God's land that was given to the Puritans. So I, I would just try to go into it that way. The notion yeah. of challenging the notion of belonging somewhere inherently. Because mm-hmm. as white people, I mean, we all have that in our past. Yeah. Or as white Americans, anyway. I mean, I find it difficult as well, Nick. I'm, I'm in the same situation as you. I had a, a former colleague who was a Ukrainian Jew who was... He wasn't even religious but he was extremely pro-zionist and anytime you made any comment he would just say you're being anti-semitic he said i know you're not anti-semitic but those comments are anti-semitic i'm like okay and you just talk yourself in circles it gets very difficult so no i mean it's it's an incredibly effective tool and it not so coincidentally rose with the the ascendance of neoliberalism in israel it was the unholy matrimony of the religious right and the secular right in Israel. Because before that, the religious constituency was more likely to be on the center left in the Labour Party. Yeah, and I guess why I bring up the question is because I think we need to get more people talking about it even more than I already do. And I think honestly, you know, we're a little bit we're a little bit misguided. I don't know if misguided is the right word, but we've got a little bit of kind of a weird view on it just because we live in the US. And I think throughout the rest of the world, especially, I mean, even Europe, I would think that this is, a, I mean, if you look at something like the World Cup, right, and just like the acceptance of the world to talk about Palestine, talk about what's going on, right? But it's still kind of taboo in the US because of its linkage between that state and the US empire, right? So that's still, I think, even a little bit more taboo than even in other parts of the world, right? But because that linkage exists, I think it's more it's even more important that we raise consciousness here because we're the state that is supporting kind of like the violence of the Israeli state in a lot of ways, right? The Zionist state in a lot of ways. So it's important to raise consciousness. And I definitely do think that it's best if this conversation is led one by, you know, Palestinian voices and two by anti-Zionist Jewish voices, right? So you, can, you have that, that credibility, the, the, the ability to kind of rebut that appeal to anti-Semitism kind of out of hand, right? 
Although I guess you could get called a self-hating Jew, right? Like Bernie does or whatever, but I've been called so much worse. I mean, I guess my point is though that like we need even we need those people people like that leading, I think, the conversation. And but we need even more supporting voices as well. And I think it's gonna be something that we have to grapple with just in terms of having these conversations. Yeah, to sort of maybe close out on a more hopeful note. I mean, we all remember that twenty minute news cycle where the American population was really on the side of the Palestinian conflict when there was massive bombing in Gaza. I mean, there, there really is sympathy there whenever the information gets out. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of how do we bridge that gap. Yeah, we just keep trying to do our part, you know? Yeah. So, uh, hey, and you know, if you look at, I guess, to kind of piggyback on a hopeful note, I mean, you can look at something like ending apartheid in South Africa and you look back on that now, and it's like, that's something that made all the sense in the world to, to bring that to a close. But it wasn't always like that. The consciousness wasn't always there for it to be just a complete no-brainer that this system of injustice has to end. The listener, you can do your part by subscribing and giving us a review. And more importantly, go check out your local BDS coalition. <laughs> of course. All right. Well, thanks for that, Steve. Good talking to you guys as always, and uh, we'll see you all next time. Thanks. Adios, paisanos. I really like that end.